A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I run to the laundry sink and I spit out this pool of blood. I just watch this pool of blood hit the bottom of the sink and splatter and it's just fresh red blood. The first thing that pops to my mind is... If you ever cough up blood, get to emergency ASAP. Where I went from bleeding lungs in a hospital bed to the finish line of a marathon. Having CF is like being in the ring with Mike Tyson. It never stops. It's just a barrage of punches yeah. coming in all the time and you can manage it at times. Every now and then you get caught. My life is going to be different from here on out. So how do you have this conversation with your sister who's two and a half years younger than you that you think you're possibly dying? And for the next 10 minutes, it's almost like the world blacks out and I'm just driving there thinking, I hope to God this isn't it. This might get a bit emotional, but you said to me that before you met Soph, you had the disbelief that you could ever even have a partner, have a family, be the best dad. That's a pretty hectic thought to live with. Brad, before the show, I got you to write down a quote that came to mind straight away, something that you really love and you wrote as follows. You wrote, purpose fuels progress. Now, out of all of the quotes you could have asked and answered, that's what you wrote. Mm. Talk to me a bit about the meaning behind that and, and why you thought of that quote. Yeah, it's an interesting one and, you know, it makes me feel quite smart because I, f- I think I come up with it unless I heard it somewhere and I'm not crediting the right person. But the reason it means something to me is it's kind of like the, I guess you'd call it the bumper sticker of a really exciting four-month journey for me where I went from bleeding lungs in a hospital bed to the finish line of a marathon. And I remember the thing that we kept saying, like me and my group of mates who trained for that together and dedicated a four-month portion of our life to, I guess, what was a transformation for me, really, and almost like a rebirth into getting back my health and vitality as a CF patient who, for the few years before it, had just watched his health go on a landslide. It was like this connection to something bigger than myself really fueled this progress. I went from a place in which I could barely run 5Ks. Like, we ran eight this morning. Mm. We're able to chat and have a good time. If you had said to me a couple of years ago, like before middle of 2020, that you'll go for 8K jogs and enjoy it and laugh and have a good time, I'd go, mm-hmm. you're fucking kidding yourself. Am I last way here? Yeah. Yeah. I'd go, you're kidding yourself because it's just something that 
I didn't think would be a part of my life. And I would struggle to run 5Ks. Like it was so strenuous to me. And in the space of four months, and actually even more micro, in the space of six weeks, I left a hospital bed and found myself running 25Ks by myself. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is six weird. Weeks. Six weeks. And I was like, what do I put this down to? Because I'm not on performance enhancers. <laughs> like, even this, though you look like it, you I know. don't look like it. I ran with you this morning. I kept my shirt on for a reason. <laughs> I'm not on performance enhancers, and there's nothing like crazy about my training that is that is like somewhat going to miraculously provide me with that kind of result and transformation. And it was literally because I decided I'm going to run a marathon in four months. Not only to prove to myself that I'm capable of that and that cystic fibrosis doesn't define who I am, but I want to prove to other people who don't have the blessing of the strength of mindset that I have that we don't have a death sentence because of this disease. Mm. And so for me, the connection to a purpose that was bigger than myself just fueled this insane progress and literally has been, I guess what you'd call the foundation for four incredible years of my life. Mm, it's it's so interesting. And when you sent that quote to me, I was I was really thinking about it because I've heard about it before, maybe from you, maybe from someone mm. else, not too sure, but purpose fuels progress. And it, it made me think, and it obviously splits into two parts, right? Where there's purpose um, and, you know, a lot of people have their own meaning for that. And I'd love for you to dive in what, what your meaning for purpose actually is. And then you've got progress. And, you know, I find for me personally, why progress is so important is because a lot of time my happiness is tied to progress. I find when I'm not progressing in certain areas of my life, I'm not very happy. So if I'm not progressing in the area of relationships in my life, I struggle to enjoy the relationships area of my life. If I'm not progressing in the health area of my life, I struggle to go to the gym. Mm. And when I'm not progressing in business, by all means, it's not as enjoyable, that's for sure. So I find my happiness a lot of the time is enhanced when I'm progressing in any area of my life. Do you feel like when you're tying it back into that quote, purpose fuels progress, do you feel like being aligned with purpose and living on your path of you know higher calling, I guess you could say, allows that progression to come a lot more naturally? I would say without doubt. And I would say that for me, it's funny because people would look at me now and go, you train every day, you've taken massive risks in your life as it goes for work and business. You're in a loving relationship. You want to start a family. You're in a really good place of your life in which you're, you know, I'd like to think that I'm progressing and have progressed a lot in the last couple of years. And you could make the mistake of thinking that I've always been that way. Mm. But there's a period for me between the ages of like 18 and 24 where I'd say that I rarely progressed. In fact, I would say I was, I was quite lazy in hindsight. I look back now, I'm kind of a little bit of embarrassed about the way that I led my life. I progressed mm. from a work standpoint. You know, my old field in real estate, I was hungry and wanted to be successful and wanted to progress and be better at my work. But every area outside of that was a little bit sedentary. Mm. And so for me, it's funny that I didn't really have a sense of purpose. That concept to me or that idea, if you said to me, really wanted to think about your purpose i'd go that's a bit fucking hippie isn't it yeah <laughs> like what yoga class have you been yeah, yeah you know but i think that's where we go wrong with purpose it's kind of like a phrase that we think is reserved for a-list celebrities to talk about their purpose and their sense of meaning or fulfillment from life or it's you know reserved for people who are in bali on a yoga retreat who are sitting there and you know doing the hums and you know closing their eyes and meditating for hours of the day the truth is that purpose is actually quite simple. 
And by definition, there's a few ways that I like to look at it. And I've taken this inspiration, this learning, this education from people who are way smarter than I am. A guy like Jay Shetty. I think Jay does a beautiful job of taking quite spiritual and meaningful thoughts and, and making them highly practical for everyday human beings. And one of his definitions of purpose, which I love, is asking yourself two questions. What am I passionate about? How can I use that to serve others? Mm-hmm. And for me, that landed. You know, I'm really passionate about storytelling and I want to use story to uplift and inspire hope in others because I've been in that place of challenge and adversity with my health. And so for me, that made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And there's another beautiful one that I love from Mel Robbins where she believes that as humans, we all have the same purpose in life, but that purpose is to live our most authentic expression. And so I think both of those actually tie in really nicely with each other because it's like, who are you? And that's why the, the hardest question for us to answer as human beings is like, who are we? Mm. You know, who is the person below the surface? Not what do you do? Like you ask someone, who are they? I say, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a real estate agent. You know, no, you're not. Like that's what you it's do. labeling, yeah. Like who are you? And so for me to answer that question and go on that journey, which I've been on the last four years, and it's ever evolving because I'm, you know, always growing, changing, life changes, throws me curveballs, sometimes new opportunities pop up. So as a human being, you're ever evolving. But like that question of who am I, you know, if you understand a little bit of who you are and you can attach some purpose, meaning, fulfillment, whatever you want to call it to your life, then progress follows because you're passionate, Mm. you're invested for a reason. Like it's really hard to get somebody to do something they hate. It's why if you say to anyone who hasn't exercised in years of their life, I want you to come and run hills with me, the chance of getting them there is really difficult. But if you said, hey, what's a sport or an activity you love that's active? They say, you know, I love playing a bit of tennis. Go play tennis three times a week. And then you'll fall in love with the process of getting better and growing and challenging yourself and then come for some hill sprints. Mm. You know, go for a flat run first and then come to the hills. It's like... If you can develop a sense of purpose and meaning or fulfillment you get from something, the rest kind of follows, mm. you know? Yeah, that, it's funny that last part you were just talking about, Stephen Bartlett in his book talks about uh, the discipline equation. Mm. And it's almost like the likelihood of you actually staying disciplined and doing that thing comes into three. It's like a, an equation that he used. And he said the, the psychological pursuit of you actually doing the thing how do you enjoy that? One out of mm. 10. And then the love and how much are you passionate about doing that thing? One out of 10. And then how much friction do you have between yourself and doing that task? And basically what you do is you add the first two up. So the pursuit of it, how much you enjoy and how much you love the thing. And then you subtract off the number you wrote for how much friction there is. And if mm. it's a negative number, I know it's a little bit confusing, but if it's a negative number, you won't be disciplined. You won't do it. Mm. And if it's a positive number, you will do it. And it's this equation where if you love it enough and the pursuit of it, you really enjoy it. So it's meaningful. It's really meaningful. And you enjoy the pursuit of it. If those two are high enough, no matter what the friction is, you'll do it. But if you don't really love it, it, someone loves running, but they don't love swimming and you tell them to go swim 5Ks, the friction there is way larger than the love and the pursuit of it. So they won't yeah. do it. But also just before what you're talking about purpose, right? And, you know, I was going to ask you your thoughts on what, what that meant for you. And it's really interesting. You're unpacking that. When people say all the time, like, find your purpose, they say, like, find what makes you happy. It's almost like, what does that mean? Hmm. Like, it seems like such a fluff term, like a made up yeah. thing. It's a way to make you feel like you're doing this thing called life wrong. 
It's like people that don't have it, they think that I need to be doing this thing and they mm-hmm. want to like, it's like this manufactured thing that someone's just going to, oh, genie's going to come in and hand it to you on a platter that makes you feel confused. It seems to me that you've got a bit more of an understanding on what purpose is and what it means for you. And you've gone on this journey of, of finding it, correct? And, and now mm. after finding it, you've found that the, the work, and as you said, meaningful work, the work's mm. more meaningful. The stuff that you're working on is aligned with that purpose. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation because I think that where I went wrong with it in the past is I think the term finding purpose is wrong. I think you develop purpose. And I think to go in search of like, I think some people think that if I go and, if I go and like change my life or I go and do something different, like purpose is going to fall out of the sky and land in my lap. And I'm like, oh nice, life is like meaningful now. And I feel fulfilled and I'm happy. I don't think it's that at all. I think purpose is heaps simpler than we play it out to be. Like I think that my greatest purpose in life would be to be a dad. Mm. Like to be the father of children and to bring them up in a way in which they feel loved they feel encouraged. They feel as though they know what's important in life and, you know, they're supported to go and live their lives and be themselves. Like for me, I think that's one of the greatest purpose purposes that anyone can hold in life is to be a great parent. And my parents, you know, I often don't think a lot of people fulfill their purpose. I think it's this thing you're kind of always just moving in the direction mm. of. But my parents fulfilled it to a T. Yeah. They're the absolute G's when it comes to parenthood. And like I've taken so much from them. But I think that like we overcomplicate the conversation and you're so right. It makes people feel as though they're so far away from where they need to be. I think you develop purpose in life by just getting an understanding of who you are. And the truth is to understand who you are, you almost, and McConaughey says this beautifully, the quickest way to figure out who you are is to figure out who you're not. Mm. Like to try things and go, that ain't it. (laughs) Well, well, even if we strip it back further, like those things that make you tick, like that's part of your purpose. 100%. The, the things that spring you out of bed in the morning, that's mm. part of your purpose. The things that you lose track of time doing, that's part of your purpose. It's not something manufactured that you're trying to get handed to you and make you feel confused. You brought up, I think what's important is we backtrack a little bit. We dive straight into it. But for the people that are listening to this right now, you have quite an amazing story. And you've been through some extremely challenging times. Certainly the cards that you've been dealt haven't been the luckiest hand of cards, at least in terms of the way you can look at it. For the audience to know a bit more, like, can we take a little step back and, and can you tell me a bit about you um, and, and, and yeah, a bit about your story? For sure. So I was born with a condition called cystic fibrosis, which it's funny, it's actually the most common genetic illness in Australia that new babies uh-huh. are born with. But it's still a rare disease because there's only around 4,000 Aussies who's li- who live with CF. I'm going to try and make this as simple as it can be because sometimes it, it confuses me. But CF essentially is a defective gene that is supposed to transport and open sort of the chloride channel for salt and water to enter the cells. Where that, where that doesn't do that or where the gene is defective, it means that mucus gets like thicker and stickier and really sits on the organs, which not only impairs the function, but it scars the organs. So when we think of mucus, we think of our lungs, the nasal system, and just kind of like everything that you can kind of like cough out or snot out. Mm. And it sounds disgusting, but the truth of it is mucus moves through the whole body. It moves through every organ, through the stomach, through the liver, you know, through the spleen. And so what we see in people with CF is not only a number of different variants, what we call genetic mutations, where they differ in severity and also in um, what organs are impaired, 
but for someone like myself who has the most common but also the most um i guess detrimental form of cf the most severe it's called basically delta f508 is the the gene mutation i've got two of those gene mutations so both my parents pass that on to me but they don't have the cf themselves they're just carriers and essentially for me my lungs i have lung disease i have um, liver disease as well from the age of nine so i don't drink alcohol um, makes me a cheap date so if Soph's taking me out for dinner soda water's on the go um, it's you know it's simple it's cheap but also my pancreas doesn't efficiently work so I don't produce the digestive enzyme needed to break down fat or protein from food um, and also I have been diabetic for a you know chunk of my life six years but now I'm just on dietary control so there's a lot of stuff that comes with it and for the majority of my life I took 50 tablets a day um, you know just to be able to eat food and function and you know, it's funny when you're born with something like CF at the time, um, I was born in 1996 and Google wasn't around. So for my mum and dad who didn't know what CF was, it wasn't as simple as just jumping on Google and finding a bunch of answers. They were kind of shocked. You know, I was a seemingly really healthy baby. My mum had like been meticulous in what she ate and what she did while she was pregnant, you know, was never around smokers, never drank, never ate processed meats, done all the things that you're supposed to do to have a healthy baby. And they were told at three weeks of age through the Guthrie's test that I had CF. And so they went just a couple of months into my life to my first doctor's appointment. And this guy is based in Sydney. I won't name him because he's a prick. And he basically sits my parents down for the first time upon meeting them and says, your son would be better off with cancer because it would kill him or he'd get over it. This will ruin his life. First thing he says to them. And my mum and dad in absolute disbelief and just shock, as you can imagine, being parents of newborn babies who just have the utmost hope and faith that they're going to be able to bring a child into this world and give them a great life, are just crushed by the, the words that he says to them. But they stand up in just what I call like one of the most courageous moments that you could ever have as a human being. They stand up in the face of this doctor and say, you'll never see us or our son again and walk out of the room. And they go and find a new doctor who has a more positive outlook on my cystic fibrosis and is all about let's do things right from the start so that we can try to limit some of the challenges but set Brad up for the best life possible. And my parents taught me this incredible lesson, maybe the greatest lesson I've ever learned, and it's something I think about every day, that what you believe hugely influences who you become. They didn't believe I was going to be another sad statistic. At the time, not many kids survived their teenage years with CF and they were like, we don't believe that. That's not the way we're going to look at this. Brad's going to have a great life and he's going to do great things. And so that early decision, which for them, there was no evidence for this. You know, I've heard um, Stephen Bartlett and Chris will have a conversation about belief, right? And I actually have to slightly disagree with them on this one thing where they said that belief is always a product of evidence. But sometimes where there's no evidence to foster self-belief, it might sound delusional. It might come from nowhere. There might be absolutely no grounds or foundation for the belief that you're going to hold but you have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And when you've got nothing going in your favor and there's nothing to say that like this guy's life's going to be incredible, they couldn't look to anyone to say that there's going to be a different life for our son, but they chose to believe it. And because of that, here I am. Here They're the reason I'm still alive. I honestly believe that. With the, with the cards I was dealt, I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for the way that they responded. Hmm. It's so amazing. And it, there's a lot of similarities to Michael Crossland's story where he spent most of his life in the hospital and... You know, he said something on stage about, far out, get a little bit emotional here in that story, hey, but he says something about how his family and his parents got told a similar thing and, and he was in the hospital bed 
and the only thing between him and his parents speaking to the doctor was a tiny little curtain and it's, it's he was sitting in this bed and he obviously it's like the doctors thought that there were soundproofing walls but the doctor said to his parents and said your son won't live another he's your son won't live a couple of months um I would pack your bags, go home and, and make sure you say all your goodbyes. And then his parents, so his mum said to the doc, what's the percentage of him living past that? Mm. And he goes, 5% chance. And she goes, okay, that's all we need. And then he, she walks back into the, into the room with, with Michael as he's lying in the bed, basically holding on for dear life. And, um, and Michael goes, what's, what's the, the news? Um, and the mum goes, the doc said, You're, everything's going to be all fine. And they walk out and she looks at it as that whole conversation around the glass, you know, is the glass, glass half full or half empty? Mm. And do we have a 95% chance of death or a 5% chance of survival? And, you know, that 5% might be all you need because the other 95 might be the belief that it's actually possible. And having those strong parents, I think you mentioned obviously just then being the, the biggest lesson from them. You've spoke about your parents a lot in this in this conversation already. What, like obviously they've played such a massive role in your life. Um, I've heard you talk about it before, how much you idolize them and look up to them. Is there been something that they've really instilled into you from such a young age that, you know, is just absolutely life-changing and, and you know, there, is there one thing that your parents have done for you that you just strive to be able to do for your kids as well, instill some sort of message into them? It's, it's funny, I was talking to Soph about this yesterday because Soph comes from a beautiful family as well. Like We come from incredible upbringings. And I think that... So I'll, I'll give you a little story here first for a bit of context. In 2022, after my third marathon, I got presented a, an award at Government House by the Governor-General and his wife for um, basically inspiring a community of people with CF and for what I'd done the last couple of years, my charity event. And I remember this feeling when I stood there and accepted the award, where it was really hard to accept because, not because I knew I hadn't done the work and, and not because I don't, um, I don't have a problem with giving myself credit. You know, I'm, I'm happy to feel prideful and to feel excited about things in my life that I've worked hard to achieve. But a big part of me felt like it should have been my family accepting mm. the award because I look back and I just think there are so many, there are so many years there Whereas a young man, they're not yours to control yet. You know, you, you know, when you're a young kid, you can't take the reins and go and make these decisions for yourself. You're hugely influenced by what your parents do for you. And they just done the most amazing job. I never once in my life questioned when, whether I was loved, whether I was safe when I was with my family, whether they lacked belief in me. And one of the biggest things that they reinforced in me is always back yourself. And that's why I have this sometimes delusional self-belief that I can do anything. And I, and I love that about myself. I'm hugely a dreamer. I'm very much of the dreamer archetype where, you know, you told me that if I said to my mum or dad, if I ring them right now in the middle of this podcast and said, you know what, after a coffee this morning and a bit of contemplation, I'm going to run for PM, they'd go, <laughs> there's no one better for the job. You know, like wow. they're just wildly, wildly supportive. And so I come from this environment in which everything that's important for a young human being, like self-confidence, self-belief, a sense of self-worth, was fostered in the environment of my home. I never had to look outside of my home for any of this. 
And so this like belief that I have in myself, which I think plays a huge part in taking risks and stepping out into the world and trying to get what you want from life is because of them. You know, my parents have been divorced for 13, 14 years now, but still have a great friendship and have never made us feel as kids like we've been loved any less or had any less of their time and attention. Like they never spoke badly of each other. They were just the most incredible parents through it all. And I look at them and I think, how selfless. As a grown man now, as like a 27-year-old man who wants to have kids in the next couple of years, I look at them and I think there is a level of selflessness that I'm yet to get to, to be the kind of parent that they were. You know, this like everything, like kids, the kids come before everything and likely at times at the detriment of themselves. I never once heard them complain about work. I never once felt like my parents were angry at the world and in fact then that reflected on me. They were just literally fucking angels on earth. And so that's why I love them and respect them so much. And it's why I get so emotional when I talk about it, because that for me feels like the thing that I've got to do in this world now, like to take that incredible childhood and give that to kids of my own. And it excites me. And, and it's hugely what fosters my, my purpose is not just being a product of that, but going, I know for sure and certain that unfortunately there's people out there who haven't had that upbringing. And so the reason I started really until 2020 people on social media or people in the community who weren't a part of my circle didn't know that I had CF I don't present like a person with cystic fibrosis like I'm quite tall and big and I don't struggle to put on weight and so you know and when I say big I'm not pumping myself up I'm you know no fucking bodybuilder but I mean like for a lot of people with CF they're quite underweight and they struggle to put on weight and so I don't carry like typically look like I have the characteristics of CF and so for me, connecting with that community and doing something for them was a part of, I know that there would be a kid who's sitting at home right now, who unfortunately, for whatever reason, you know, his or her parents didn't have the self-belief or didn't have the strength at the time to go against what, you know, the prognosis looked like and be really positive about what their future could be. Well, maybe there's parents, and I speak to plenty of parents. I actually speak to more parents of CF children than I speak to CF patients who say to me that, like, our, our young boy or girl is going through a really tough time with their CF. What advice could you give them? And I feel like it's such a privilege for me to be able to give some of that mindset and strength and evidence that, that I now have to them, which makes it a little bit easier for them to believe. Mm. What's, what is the turning point that, made you be able to go this way when most CF patients go that way? Like why, why can I look and sit in front of you right now and you look like a completely normal, thriving, shining person? Like, like what's the difference here? You're explaining people suffer with so many different things and you've gone against the grain and you can have the ability to hide the fact that you have CF simply because you've it just looks like you're just a normal person. And so t what is the turning point? What's the reason that that has happened? My life's almost like a good rom-com, Chris, in the sense that it's like, you know, I watched Love, Act um, not Love Actually, sorry, Eat, Pray, Love last night. So <laughs> great movie. But I'm not ashamed. I like rom-coms, okay? Um, <laughs> I can see you're a bit of a lover's boy. Mate, I'm a lover's boy, right? And yeah. so, you know, I was watching this movie and, you know, most rom-coms follow this theme where there's like this this person who's out of love and going through hardship in the early stage of the movie 
and you start to get a feel for what's going wrong in their life. And that's almost my diagnosis point, right? Like all this love around me and this beautiful environment and good people, but this really heavy diagnosis that doesn't look promising. And then there's this stage of like falling in love in the movie, which for me in my life is like these incredible parents who foster this self-belief. And then the next 18 years of my life is incredible. State champion, sprinter, I'm healthy. I'm what my doctors are regarding as being one of the top 5% fittest humans in the world with cystic fibrosis. Like things look great. I'm being told at this point in my life that CF will never bother you if you continue on this trajectory. Like things are looking amazing. And then I get to 18 and this is the point in the rom-com where for some reason you get really frustrated as the viewer because you're like, oh, they're falling out of love or like this thing's happened or this like immovable object has come between them and like now they're separated. And like for me, that was then the next six years of my life where at 18, I started to get complacent. You know, things were going so well. And, you know, and I'm being told that if you continue on this trajectory, you will not have to worry about your CF. But the truth is that the CF isn't this thing that you conquer. It's this thing that you're ever moving against. It's why when you speak about progress and the importance of progress, it makes so much sense to me because, you know, having CF is like being in the ring with Mike Tyson. It never stops. You know, it's just a barrage of punches yeah. coming you all the time and you can manage it at times, but every now and then you get caught. And I got caught at 18. Out of the blue, I got really ill over the course of a week. And at this point in my life, I had been told by doctors, I was going for a number of routine surgeries on my esophageal varices, and I'd been told that it was likely that I was getting these esophageal varices that were growing inside of like the base of my esophagus. If they get too big, they burst and bleed internally. And if you ever cough up blood or, or pass blood, it's a matter of life or death how quickly you get to the hospital because you're bleeding out severely from the inside. And so I'd been warned of this. Um, and over the course of this week, I'd gotten sicker and a cough had progressed and had gotten quite like a violent, really heavy and just really continuous cough over the course of 24 hours. I was supposed to go in for one of these esophageal varicy surgeries. I was well overdue for it. And because I was so sick, they're like, we can't put you under and put you into surgery because it'd be really dangerous. But you're so unwell, you need to be in hospital, mate. But they couldn't get me a bed. So they sent me home and I was waiting for a call from the hospital in Sydney to get a bed that I could then be admitted for a couple of weeks to recover and have some IV antibiotics. And as I'm sitting on the lounge this morning with my dad watching the telly, we're watching a Kevin Costner movie. And that's not relevant, but, you know, (laughs) know, I'm specific with my films. I like my films. Um, Great film, but I'm just coughing. And all of a sudden I cough and I taste something unusual in my mouth. And we all know like that taste of blood when you bite the side of your cheek or you bite your tongue. It's like metallic-y and a little bit foreign, but you can taste it's not just a little bit, it's a lot. And so I run to the laundry sink and I spit out this pool of blood. And just like you can imagine stainless steel sink, I just watch this pool of blood hit the bottom of the sink and splatter and it's just fresh red blood. And immediately the first thing that pops to my mind is if you ever cough up blood, get to emergency ASAP. And then I continue to cough and continue to spit out blood. And I just start to panic because at this point in time, I know it's a matter of life or death, or at least this is what I've been told. And so I yell out to my dad at the top of my lungs. I'm like, dad, I'm coughing up blood. And he runs into the laundry and the minute he sees it, shoes on, he's like, let's get straight in the car and go to the hospital. And at this point, you don't want to risk calling the ambulance because you know we're about 15 minutes from the hospital where we live at the time. Dad can get me there in 15 minutes. So we know we're going to cut some time. So we get in the car and we start charging towards the hospital. And I'm sitting there with an empty ice cream bucket, like what you put dog's water in. 
and I'm just like, it's catching the blood that I'm coughing up. And as we're driving to the hospital, you know, people talk about this like fight, flight or freeze state that you go into when you're in a dire situation. And I almost went into freeze. It's like I'm sitting in the car and I look at my dad and I'm like, fuck, is my dad going to see me die in the car? Like, well, the person that I, I love and idolize and like my role model in life, will he have the guilt of wondering whether he could have got me to the hospital quicker, whether he should have caught an ambulance instead of taking me himself? Like, will he have to experience that as a father? Because that's something that a parent should never experience. Then I remember that my mum and my sister aren't there, the two other people at the time who I adore more than anything. And so I call them. They're working at the same place of business. My sister answers the phone. And I'm just like, how do you have this conversation with your sister who's two and a half years younger than you that you think you're possibly dying? You know, because up until this point, my life had been good. And I said to sis, I don't know what's happening, but I'm coughing up a lot of blood. Your mum need to meet us at the hospital immediately. And my sister's like, okay, I love you so much. Hangs up the phone. And for the next 10 minutes, it's almost like the world blacks out. And I'm just driving there thinking, I hope to God, this isn't it. And as you're going on a drive like that, it's funny, like, thankfully, without leaving people on a cliffhanger, I got there and we realized that the blood was coming from my lungs, not from my esophageal varices, which is still not ideal. Um, But bleeds in the lungs can happen due to um, increased infection or scarring. And at this point, I had pneumonia. And pneumonia with CF can be deadly if it's not dealt with correctly. And I spent the next, like, three to four weeks in hospital with a spew bag, coughing up bucket loads of green mucus. My lungs were just plagued with mucus and scarring, which I'd never seen before. I used to have these clear lungs on an x-ray, and all of a sudden I had these lungs of a CF patient. And I just remember it clicked to me. My life is going to be different from here on out. CF isn't something that I'm just like easily just scoring shots on, you know, and, and walking through this looking like it's going to be a unanimous decision at the end of my life that I beat CF. This is now something that I'm going to have to go toe-to-toe with and I'm going to have to put my foot in a fucking tyre, put my head down and swing for the fences if I'm going to survive. And so for me, it was a really transformative experience, but it's quite interesting how these transformative experiences can lead to a high and then another bout of complacency. It's like once you get to the top of the mountain, you realise, like, I'm here, I'm back on top. But you forget how easy it is to fall and roll all the way back down the bottom. And almost every year for the next six, I would have one of these health crises where it's like another bleed in the lungs, another dangerous infection I'd never had before, another two, three weeks in hospital. And so it was becoming this regular thing. And then in 2019, would have been 2019, I was in hospital for this infection called Burkholderia capacia, which is it's quite a resistant infection. I remember getting the call from a doctor saying, we've just detected this in a sputum sample, like a sample of my mucus, and this is an infection that can be deadly for people with CF, but um, most significantly, if not treated immediately, can really take a hold on your lungs and you'll kind of never get rid of it. And I remember just being gutted, just thinking, fuck, how am I back in this position, like another year of this? And I hadn't really been exercising at this point. I've been so focused on like, creating this professional success and trying to like free myself of the insecurity and the you know need for validation that I had in my life and I thought professionally I'd be able to do that through like becoming a gun real estate agent who had a nice car and wore nice suits and all of this garbage that doesn't really matter in life if you don't have a sense of yourself you know they're just the cherries on top Mm -hmm. you know they shouldn't be the thing that you're focused on and 
he said, we're going to book you a bed in hospital this afternoon. We need you to spend the next two to three weeks on 24-7 um, antibiotic treatment. And I was like, okay. And so weirdly, I've got this weird relationship with the hospital where, you know, it's almost like a hotel for me. It's a place to go and restore and recover. It's a place to disconnect from the world. And I know that I'm going to leave in a better place than when, when I entered. And so I, I always enjoyed the solitude of it. I always had family and friends around, but I enjoyed this like deep focus on just getting my health back. You know, I know how important that is to me. And on this particular day, I checked in the hospital and my mum was there with me, helping me set up. And we walked down the hallway to get a cup of tea and we bumped into this older gentleman. And my mum knew him. And my mum's like me. She knows everyone in Wollongong. When you're in a sales job in Wollongong, such a small town, you know everyone. Mm -hmm. And she'd sold this guy a car before. His name was Ernie. Ernie would have been in his 60s. And he's staying in the room just next to mine. Staying in the room like it's a fucking hotel. And I look in his room and I'm so privileged that as someone with CF who needs to like be in infection control, I've got an isolated room like with no other patients because they can't have me near other infections. But as I look into Ernie's, he's in a room with three other gents. And there's just something about the room. These older guys who are quite unwell and just the energy of the room was down. I remember looking at Ernie and he just seemed like such a happy-go-lucky, cuddly, big teddy bear character who just, you know, needed some, some love and a mate in that place. And I said to him, mate, if you ever need to get out of your room, come knock on my door and we can have a chat. And he goes, yeah, we'll do that. And that afternoon at two o'clock, tea and biscuit cart come around. I get a knock on the door and it's Ernie. He's got his tea and his bickies in his hand and he said, can I come in, mate? I said, you're coming for a chat. And over the course of the next two weeks, he'd knock on my door every afternoon. We'd share a yarn. And I started to get to know this guy. And as I got to know him, I realized that Ernie's stay in hospital would be his final stay in life. You know, he had terminal cancer. And just as I started to ask him questions and figure out his life and figure out, you know, what sort of headspace he was in at the end of his time, I knew that he was a father who was leaving kids and also grandchildren behind. He'd been married a couple of times and had beautiful relationships with all of his ex-wives. He'd lived this wildly interesting life as a prison guard and had been responsible for keeping guys like Ivan Malat behind bars and had all these wild stories. But I just got this sense that like... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ernie only wanted to talk about the things that really mattered, like family connections, love, experience, like the, the moment and memory rich things that he was leaving behind. And as a young man, it changed my perspective. So focused on this idea of success, like tangible success that you could show people and show off. And I just realized that like, man, I'm on a slippery slope because I'm 23 and I'm in the worst health of my life and it's getting worse every year and something needs to change. 
And as I left that hospital, I knew that Ernie wouldn't be leaving and I eventually attended his funeral a couple months later. But he taught me this really valuable lesson about how precious our time is. And as I went through the next six months, nine months of my life, I tried to figure out what that looked like for me. You know, what was going to give me that sense of purpose, that sense of passion, what was going to reignite, what had been like mentally quite a, a flat stage of my life. I wouldn't go as far to say I was depressed. I was just in this, almost this period of like a couple of years where I felt sad and flat. And it's because I wasn't doing the things that were good for me, that like re-energize me and refuel me and give me that like zest for life and the passion that I have now. And then I found myself in 2020, trying to cut a long story short here, where I just started getting that passion and that joy for life back. And out of the blue, I got hit with three days of consecutive bleeds in the lungs. And I'm lying in Wollongong Hospital. It's 2 a.m. on the third night. We're waiting for some test results to come back to see how much blood I've lost if I need a transfusion. But thankfully, I didn't. I'm okay. But as I'm sitting there with my dad next to me at 2 a.m., a memory pops up on my phone of him 22 years before this. I'm 24 at the time. And he's just run 68 Ks three days in a row to raise money for cystic fibrosis. And for the last month before this, I've challenged myself to run a 5K every Sunday. And it's hard and it's been strenuous, but I'm kind of enjoying, you know, that friction you spoke about before. I'm enjoying going against the friction. It's giving me something. It's giving me this sense of growth and fulfillment and meaning and passion. And I'm getting like this new confidence in myself that maybe I'm like the best is ahead of me yet. But by this point, I'm no means fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm carrying a real estate dad bod and I've got some shit to sort out. <laughs> and I look at this photo of my dad, the shortest pair of footy shorts you've ever seen in your life, holding a can of twoies as he's crossing mm-hmm. the finish line. There's another photo that accompanies that of me in his arms. And the story, I've actually still got the newspaper cut out to this day. It says um, something along the lines of like, dad runs home for little boy or something like that. And it's wow. really, it's really special. I want to get it framed one day. And as I'm looking at this, I just have this moment of inspiration. I said to my dad, you know what? By the end of this year, it was July at the time. I'm going to run a marathon to prove that nothing is impossible for people with CF and to prove to myself that I can do this. So we're not defined by this or we're not limited by this. I think this is my time to do something and give back to that community. And my dad just backed it. Mate, if you say you're going to do it, you'll do it. And for me, that was a turning point in my life. It changed everything. It wasn't the end of challenge or adversity. Like there were many lung bleeds along the way to come. But it was the time that really just set my life in this place of regardless of what happens, I'm going to do something to overcome it. You had three days of consecutive coughing up blood and then decided to run a marathon, Mm. you know, in four months off the back of that. So insane. There's a lot to unpack with what you were just talking about with Ernie and what an amazing story and what an awesome perspective. Even just before that in the story, which I was so fascinated in your perspective with hospitals, Mm. you said you looked at a hospital like a hotel room, a place Mm. to recover, rejuvenate and get better and leave a better place. I really struggle with hospitals and the vibe at a hospital, private, public. I walk into a hospital, I feel death i feel unhealthy i feel a really negative vibe i really struggle to be in hospitals and i'm fortunate enough that i've the only ever time i've lied in a hospital bed is if i've had a broken bone Um, i'm very blessed on that front how did you manage to look at hospitals in a positive way like how does that even work in your mind because i cannot even conceptualize that for me i try and stay so far clear the only time i'll go there's if my friend's in there and i need to see them 
Like, how does that happen in, in your mind? Well, I, I would say that I like to try and stay clear too. Um, it's just <laughs> yeah, as we all would. Yeah. <laughs> when you go in there, it's make the most of it. And you said a word there that is really powerful in perspective. And I learned this incredible perspective from a little mate of mine. His name was Krishnan. I was nine at the time. It was my first time being admitted into hospital for two weeks for what they used to call at the time when I was really healthy, just a tune-up. Essentially, it's like the service you'd get on your car, like every couple of years or someone would see if you'd go in, they'd run some tests, you'd do a few things to get the lungs right and to tune them up, have some medications that help kill any potential infections in there. And I would go in every couple of years for a tune-up. And I was just so privileged that my mum and dad never left me for a second without one of them beside me in hospital. One of them would sleep in the guest room, one would sleep in the chair beside mm -hmm. my bed. And at the time I got put into this room, it was my first day at Sydney Children's Hospital in Ramwick. And there was me and three other young lads my age. Still remember all the names, Peter to my left, Andrew to the far left, and Krishnan in front of me. Now Christian, Krishnan um, is his name. He was um, Indian by descent and his parents unfortunately were never there. Now Krishnan had been in hospital for months at this point. He had leukemia, he had no hair on his head, no eyebrows, and like he was going through such heavy chemo and radiotherapy that he'd often like wet the bed at night and you know, was just going through a really tough time in hospital. And my parents become like his parents too and he become like my brother for that two weeks. My mum and dad would buy him new pajamas when he'd wet his pajamas to make sure he was clean and they'd buy him the same dinner that I got because I don't like hospital food. I was a picky little prick. And they'd, you know, if I was having KFC that night, Krishna would get some KFC with me as well. And we really looked after him. And I just remember he become like my little mate, you know, same age as me. He's just like this guy that like I loved being in hospital with. We had such a fun time. We'd run amok. And he was just always happy. And I remember, man, I remember being nine. And I was always really present because I think when you've got a health crisis like CF, it makes you really present of what's happening in your life. And I just remember looking at him and I used to question and say to mum and dad, God, he's so happy, yet he's going through such a hard time. I can't imagine how that would be. Like I have CF and some people think that's hard, but it pales in comparison to what this guy is facing. And he just never didn't have a smile on his face. No matter how sick he was, no matter what treatment he'd been through that day, he was beaming. And I got moved a couple days with a couple days to go at the hospital to another ward. And he escaped the ward, climbed through a window just to come and see me. And I remember leaving hospital and I said goodbye to him. And I don't know if Christian survived. I've tried to find out, tried to go through records, I've asked people at the hospital. I don't know whether this guy's alive or if he's not with us anymore. But he had the greatest impact on me because it reminded me that no matter how hard your life is, someone's facing a bigger mountain than you are and that doesn't mean that what you're going through isn't something where you should feel struggle or pain or sadness at times because all of our challenges are relative but it made me realize that if you have the power of perspective to put a smile on your face and absolutely just wave through the shit life has to be better mm. for it and you know what other choice do you have like your delta your delta hand and you can't control it like so much of these challenges that we have with chronic illness are just completely out of our control like I can can't control what happens to me next I can do my absolute best to stay healthy and stay on top of it and I do a really good job of that now but just like Krishnan like he didn't want to be there but he was and he made, made the absolute most of it mm -hmm. and so for me this hospital space has been a decision that every time I step foot in that place what can I get out of this and that same trip where I met Ernie, I met another mate of mine who were in the cafe in the hospital. I'd wake up at six, walk down the stairs, 
and I'd literally do laps of the hospital to get some exercise in. And when I got disconnected from my drip, I'd run up and down the stairs. And the nurses don't like you to do this stuff, but they just knew that I was like a fucking unleashed ferret. <laughs> you know, once I get out of the room, I'm going to bolt and make the most of the time that I've got. Mm. And so I'd have a coffee with my mate who ran the cafe every morning. We'd have a chat. And we went on to do some business together after that when I was still in real estate. And I was just like, whatever opportunity there is for me to make the absolute most of this experience, I'm going to do it. I used to have clients come through, so the little beds that slide or the table that slides over your bed. I used to have it set up in the corner with a view and the nurses knew that at 10 o'clock, I have my meetings for an hour. I'd have clients that would come into the hospital wow. and I'm sitting there on a drip in pajamas, <laughs> unshaved and we'd do business. Because it was just, what other excuse do I have? Am I going to sit in bed and, and moan and complain? I'm in such a privileged position compared to most people who are in this space. And some of them, this will be the last place they ever see. Mm. So like, my life isn't that bad. And I, and I just think that that perspective is so important. Yeah, it's not about the way you get knocked down, it's how you get back up, right? 100%. You mentioned everything's relative. Um, you said the word relative. And I use that term so much and how it's everything's relative. And, and I even take it that next step further and sometimes say the most extreme things to make my situation look better. Mm. So anything bad that can happen, like, oh, at least I'm not on the front line. Like at least I'm not getting shot at by a gun right now and I'm trying to dodge and, and hide in a trench. Like I'm, I'm not at the front line. I'm all good. I'm going to be okay. And I love having stories like this. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to put themselves in the line after this conversation because all it, all it really does is it puts things into perspective and go, hang on, mate. Like quit your complaining about mm. your stupid things. Your food comes out cold at a cafe. Be blessed that there's some food there. Like if the coffee, they bring out a latte instead of a flat white. Oh, well, yeah. like you've got it's people in the front things. line. You've got people that aren't making it out of the hospital today. You've mm. got parents that have been so excited to have a kid and then realize that it's, it's, it's got disabilities and it's going to have challenges for the rest mm. of its life. Put yourself into perspective and be bloody grateful. 100%. And that's for me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect. I slip. Sometimes I complain. Sometimes I whinge and whine. But it doesn't take long for me to go, <laughs> bigger picture, mate. Yeah. Take a step back. And that's what I say to everyone. I think one of the greatest the tools that you can have, yeah, is like, it's really hard if you're like staring, like if you've got a camera in front of, front of your face and you're super close to the wall, like maybe sometimes all you see is the darkness of what you're sitting in front of. But if you take a few steps back, just the frame opens up and you can see things from a wider perspective. And sometimes like when you're in the shit, and it's just like this cycle mm. of every day is hard. You just need to take a few steps back. And then you see things from a... Okay, and then it's like, okay, it isn't that bad. Yeah. Yes, like I got a parking fine, but that's life. I'm going to like pay the fine and next time I'm just not going to park in that space. <laughs> and I'm going to change it up. Like life sometimes can be frustrating and hard. And of course, we're all busy and we've got things going on and it makes it that way. But sometimes you just need to take a step back from your situation and realize how lucky you are. And we have so many examples of that in the world right now to show how lucky we are to live on the east coast of Australia mm. or wherever you live if you're listening to this podcast. The truth of the matter is that you are more fortunate than 99% of the world. Just being able to watch this on a screen 100%. is the first thing. Yeah, and, and I'm in a spot where I, I think it's really important to catch yourself and your mates on when you are being negative mm. and like 
I'm so critical with it to the point where some people get really annoyed in the moment, but then they thank me later. It's like, we'll go watch a sunrise down in Bondi beach, the most known beach in the world. And we'll go down, walk down from our homes and there'll be a bit of clouds um, and the sunrise wouldn't be as perfect as we'd like. Or maybe it's a little bit around the corner and you can't see it as much. And like, I remember there was one time a couple of months ago where one of the girls was just complaining so much. It's like barely clouds in the sky, but like there was a little bit covering. And so the sunrise was like not too perfect. And she's like, oh, why the fuck is there all these clouds here? And I grab her and I'm like, I'm not going to say her name, but I just grab her and I'm like, like, are you kidding me right now? We're in Bondi Beach. We've got an amazing group of 10 people that are all pushing each other to level up and thrive. Mm. And you're complaining there's some clouds in the sky for this mm. sunrise. It's like, come on, like, like check in on what, on what sure. you're doing here. I think perspective is so powerful. I think if I was going to get a tattoo. I don't actually have any tattoos, but perspective has been one that I've been toying around with a lot because it's just such a great reminder. Having something to read that says perspective on it, mm. one word can mean so much things because it makes you, it makes you think that glass half full or half empty. It's like, how are you going to look at the world? How are your outlet outlets? Like how you, how, how's your outlook on life? For sure. Um, I just spoke on, on tattoos. You've, you've got a lot of tattoos. Oh, and yes. I was going to say, save your money. <laughs> yeah, save your money. <laughs> You've got a lot of tattoos and um, I've heard you speak about them before, some of which have a lot of amazing meaning, um, which is so special. Um, a lot ties into that story, into your parents. And if there's one that you could point out straight away that, that you know, you can explain the meaning behind it um, and, and what that tattoo means to you, that would be amazing for the audience. Yeah, so there's a lot and they're all kind of like big images, but the... <laughs> The one that I love the most is like the smallest, most simple, but also, I guess from a tattooer's perspective, the most annoying because it kind of just gets in the way of everything else. But um, this one here, so I've got one on my wrist, sort of sits either side and it's it's pretty special. So the day that I ran my first marathon, I'd created an event called 42 for CF that was to raise money for cystic fibrosis in Australia for research, development and advocacy of, you know, life-saving drugs. And so on the day, like, We'd trained well, I'd made a heap of progress, but unfortunately a month before the event, I'd had really serious lung bleed and got taken to hospital in an ambulance and was told to probably give it up and just let the other people who were running, there were another 12 runners, let them do it and just attend and kind of be the voice. But I just don't have that in me. Like I'd made a commitment to be there and you know I wanted to prove to myself that I could rise above that challenge. And so I knew that that date would require everything that I had, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally to get across the line. Like I had to use everything in my power. And so I picked one of my best mates up, Joey, um, the morning of the marathon to go down and run. And all my family were down there helping set up. And I had elastoplast around my wrist, like a footy player would before they run out onto the field. And I intended on putting a message in there. And Joey had done the same. And he said, I'll write yours if you write mine. Because we, for some reason, we both put it on the hand that we actually write with, yeah, <laughs> which right. lo lo like logically is so yeah. stupid. But um, I'm not saying we're the sharpest tools in the sheds, but we're very inspired. <laughs> and he said, "What do you want?" And then, just to spur of the moment, I said, "For all you've done today, I'll make you proud." And then write "Dad, Mum, and Sis" underneath. Mm. And you know, at this point in my life, Soph's name would be on there as well. But this was a little bit before I'd met her. And, you know, I just remember it was sitting there on this elastoplast and I just knew that on that day I'd, I'd have to look down at that at some point when I wanted to quit. 
and just use that to remember that all of the hard yards, all of the sacrifice, all of the energy, time and effort they put into me, like the reason that I'm here right now, like I get to today cross the line, not just for me, but to prove to them that no matter what I face, I'll find a way to come through the other side of it, you know, because I have that same belief that they've gifted me. Mm. And I remember on the day, it was like four Ks to go and I was absolutely in the hurt locker. At this point, I looked like I'd had about 45 schooners, you know, and I was coming home from the pub at like 7 a.m. or something like that. Um, but I was, you know, just deep in the pain of a marathon and, you know, it was really taking it out of me. And I remember one of my mates said to me, what do you got on your wrist? And he was taking a video of me because we're, you know, putting this out to the world on socials, getting these donations in. And and I just read it and I said, like, for all you've done today, I'll make you proud, dad, mum and sis. And I just remember just crying my eyes out for the next K or two. Just this euphoric feeling because it's, you know, when you get four Ks out from the end of a marathon, you know that it's going to hurt, but you know you're going to make it. No one throws in the towel before to go. You know, you're nearly there. But it's this point of real friction, right, where it's like this is going to take everything that I've got. I need to empty the tank, but I know I can make it. I can see that finish line. And for me, it was just this beautiful feeling that when I crossed the line, and I had my family surrounding me. They all come up, gave me a kiss on the head. It was just this incredibly euphoric feeling that it doesn't matter what someone throws at me in life. It doesn't matter what curveballs come my way. Like how down I get, I always find a way. Mm. And that's like this sense of self-belief. But also just I think that like resilience is hugely a product of purpose and perspective. You know, like if you've got the right perspective and if you've got a purpose that's strong enough, that gives you enough meaning to get through the shit that you're in, like you'll find a way to be resilient. You can find the grit. It's in mm. you, you know. And I just think that for me, that's like the most significant thing that I always look at that. You know, it's it's really special for me that the, the last year in particular, I was able to achieve some really, you know, really special professional goals and do some things where, you know, my grandparents got to see me on TV. You know, they, they don't know how to watch or listen to a podcast. You know, they got to see me share my story on TV and do some things that really for them, they can look at now and go, man, this this young kid that was such a part of his life, you know, for my parents were there for every step and even now for my partner, Soph, to go to like, oh, it's a guy that I get to create a family with. It's really special for me to go out into the world and do it not only for me, but for them too. Mm, that's so amazing. Uh, just so inspiring. And, and on your wrist, you said dad, mum and sis, mm. and you, if you were to get it now, you would write Soph. Mm. This might get a bit emotional, but when we first met and hung out before I went on your show, you said to me that before you met Soph, you had the disbelief that you could ever even have a partner, have a family. You, um, you mentioned that you went through your life not thinking it was ever even going to be a possibility. And as much as you wanted to be a dad and have, be the best dad, you didn't even know if it was ever going to happen because you didn't know if there was going to be a woman out there that was going to be able to go through the shit with you and um that's a pretty hectic thought to live with and then you met Soph mm. and talk to me about your feeling like through that like that thought going through your life and not knowing if you could make a family yeah, it's a funny one man so for for men with CF, it's immediately a little bit more difficult to have a kid because the vast deference doesn't form in your body, which is what transports the sperm. And so 
basically like you shoot blanks and you've got to use IVF. It's like 1% of men who have the vast difference with CF and can have kids naturally. I can't. But that's never the worry because there's so much amazing tech out there and science now that, you know, Soph and I can use IVF to have a baby. And actually it kind of um, allows us to test the embryos and, and see if our baby might potentially have CF, which is, you know, there's a challenge to having a baby with CF when you're someone with CF and cross-infection. It's really hard to be in the same home with CF. And so there's some positives to using IVF and that's that perspective thing, right? There's mm. positive behind everything. But particularly the challenge for me was especially for the period from 18 to 24 when I was going through the shit and like a really challenging time with my CF. You know, there were points in my life, mate, where like for six weeks, just every second night, my lungs would bleed. Like the minute I might put my head on the pillow, I'd start coughing up blood and there's blood everywhere. And it's like, it's quite hard to see from my family's perspective. It's hard to watch. It's scary. And... And I thought, fuck, like it'd be really hard for someone to come into my life and think, you know, I can bet on a future with this guy. Like, you can't tell me that anyone who meets someone with CF doesn't sit down and like Google search what cystic fibrosis is, you know, to get a bit of background. And, you know, the first thing that pops up is life expectancy, 41 years. And so to think, if I have a family of that person around the age of 30, are they potentially not going to be here to watch our children grow up? They're potentially not going to be here to support me as their partner in life for longer than this next little chapter. And I didn't believe that for myself. I didn't believe that 41 years of age would be my reality. Mate, I'm more confident than anyone that I will not kick the bucket before 100. I'll be the old bastard where his kids are going, when do we get the inheritance? Seriously, is this bloke going to give up? <laughs> is he going to go to sleep and not wake up one morning? It doesn't look likely. So I've got all the belief in the world that I'm going to be here forever. And obviously forever is just a, you know, a term, but yeah. you know, I believe I'm going to live a long, healthy life, but it's really hard. It was really hard for me to believe that I'd find someone who was invested in that sense of belief too. And then one day I remember sitting down with a mutual friend of ours, Ty, and we call him Foons and Foons over a coffee or over a run one morning said, Hey, I think we should catch up for a coffee tomorrow. And I'd love for you to bring to the coffee two limiting beliefs you see in me and I'll bring two that I see in you and let's try to help each other have a better back half of the year. I was like, I really like that idea. It's great. We've got such a great friendship. There's so much safety and you know, space to be vulnerable and open with each other because there's a real sense of trust and, and love there as mates. And so we rocked up the coffee the next morning and the first limiting belief he hit me with was he said, it's wild to me that the same sense of belief and inspiration that people get from you when you step on stage or you sit behind a mic and talk about all the challenges that you face and where you see if as a badge of honor can be so inspiring and it's a thing that you can feed off yourself but the minute it comes to the idea of meeting someone and having a family with them it's the one thing that you think will hold you back mm. and I was just like oof never thought of it like that I've never thought that like this thing that gives me such a sense of power and purpose and like has given me a, a ticket to help people in this world, like the opportunity to do that is the one thing that I think will hold me back from what I know I'm really destined to do, what I'm here for. And I was like, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I want to challenge myself to overcome it. And I took a trip to the US in October, um, sort of late October, early November in 2022 by myself, I was solo, roaming around LA, roaming around New York, and it's crazy being in these two spaces that are just full of people, 
and full of life and ambition and just hustle and bustle. And I felt alone, not in the sense that I was lonely. I'm quite comfortable in my solitude. But I felt this aloneness when I was there experiencing. Where I thought, oh, it'd be really nice to experience the great rich moments of life alongside someone that you love, alongside someone that you're building that life with. And I was doing a lot of journaling and I made a decision that I was going to do everything in my power to overcome that ridiculous limiting belief. And if I met the right person, if I met someone who aligned with me, who shared the same values and morals, I'd give it everything. And two days after I got home, I was sitting on the lounge and a picture on Instagram popped up on a Saturday night. And I just looked at this woman and thought, that is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. She just had a smile that would light up her room. Just a sense of energy. And I don't know what it was, but this feeling that I need to know who that is. And so I sent her a ballsy message, locked in a date. And the minute I left that first date, I was like, I think I'm going to marry that woman. Wow. And just like that, man. Two weeks later, she'd come over to stay at my place. Never I left. told her I loved her. She never left. Wow. And... I am so inspired by the way you talk about her because you, I've never heard someone speak so highly of, of a girl and, and like it, it, you can really see the place she has in your heart and how much she means to you. And it's so inspiring. I would, on my purpose statement, like I've wrote, like, um, I, I wrote, I wrote like. I want my, or well, I wrote, I will, my wife will look at me in a state of awe um, and she'll, she'll be so drawn to me. She'll look at me in a state of awe and, and I see the way that you look and talk about Soph and it's like, that's how I want my partner to look at me. It's like, if my partner looks at me the way you talk about Soph, like I, in my opinion, I've mastered romantic relationships. Mm. I really love that. And I think that really ties into a, the last question that I, I really want to ask you and it's a simple question but I'm really intrigued and it's like are you happy right now yeah. I am and I can say this with confidence the happiest I've ever been and I hugely believe that it's a product of love I've come to realize man that the last four years of my life I I took some time off at the start of this year we're recording this, what, late Jen. And I took a few weeks off to really sit and reflect on the last few years and figure out what I want from this next phase of my life. And as I wrote down all the things that I'm really proud of, all of the challenges that I've overcome, all of the lessons I've learned, I realized that I spent so much of my life focusing on what I was trying to build, like professionally, that I really forgot over the last four years how much I've grown as a man. But the most significantly important thing in my life, outside of, of course, making sure that I'm healthy so I can enjoy all the great things and be a great partner, is her. Like, love is a special thing. And I remember just a month into our relationship, she'd come to watch me speak on a podcast. And we left this podcast um, with the great man Dylan Mullen in Sydney. And we sat across the road for a coffee and lunch after and she burst out into tears and was like, if for the rest of my life I have to to work hard so that you can do that and share that message with the world, like, I'll do it because people need to hear you speak about this stuff. And she said, I just feel so privileged. And the thing is, I tell her every day, like, I'm a big words of affirmation guy. 
I tell her every day, but she will never truly understand how much I love her and how much she means to me because she's given me the, the ultimate gift. She's given me the ability to, and also the, um, she's just given me the gift, man, that like, I know I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a great mm. husband. And like everything else feels so irrelevant now. You know, like I'll continue to work hard and, and share my purpose and help people through story and connect with amazing people. But nothing excites me as much as lying in bed with her and having a cup of tea does. You know, it's just the most incredible feeling when you can look at another person and say that we get to build a life together. And she's honestly the kindest, most caring and loving human being I've ever met. And, you know, I truly believe that maybe the greatest thing I can do in my life is give her the love she deserves. Mm. And I just feel so drawn to that because a big thing for me is mastering relationships, mm. building an inspiring powerhouse friend group and a loving romantic relationship. And I just feel like relationships are the most important thing in our life. Um, you know, and our job is to be able to free up the time and make sure it's healthy time. We're healthy body, mentally, physically. So then that's healthy time spent to, to build those relationships, to share all of our memories with. And, and I just feel like when you are missing a massive chunk of your life, important, important part of your life in terms of relationships, if you're missing that loving side of your life, you don't realize how much of an impact they make until you find someone. It's almost like you think that your life is great and everything's good but then you find someone that you truly love and you go holy shit this is life this is all i want yeah and it's almost your whole perspective switch in terms of i just want to look after her i just want to make her proud i just want to she's going to be the mother to my children and she's going to be a bloody bloody good one too yeah. and i want to make sure that, that family that we build is so special and I just feel so blessed that I've come across you in my life because I can really see you be a, a mum to, to my kids and, and my wife. It's and special. It's a very special feeling because I just, I just think people go through their life too much at mediocre. Mm. And they maybe have been with someone for so long and the easier way is to stay with them even though you don't actually see them being the best. They feel like you feel yeah. like you can get more. And I feel like when you've really mastered a romantic relationship is when you go, she is the best. She's the cream of the crop. She's the top. And I am proud enough in myself that I've got to a point where I can attract someone like that. Mm. And she's going to be a mom to, to my kids. And like, I just feel like you're building something like that. And I just want to commend you for your story and the, your ability to tell it is even more amazing than the story. And I, that, um, I just think it's, it's so amazing and, and you just need to keep doing you and keep doing what you're doing because it's super special. I appreciate that, brother. And I, you know, hit the ball back over the fence and say that for me, it's been really cool to see, you know, we've only been really connected for a couple months now, but to see the energy that you put out into the world and it's, um, it's almost hard for people to probably believe that, you know, I think we, a lot of people experience you through social media and there's this sense of like just excitement and joy and passion for life. And it's always really interesting to go, when I meet that guy in person, is he going to be the same in person? And you are, you know, you're a bundle of joy, man. And we had a great time. It's, you know, for some people, the idea of being socially connected to someone from, you know, the point of 7.30 this morning to now, you know, a couple of hours later, we're still talking and chatting and like, there's been no 
moment of silence or need for it you know like there's a genuine passion and excitement that you have for life and man it's been a pleasure to see you do your thing and i'm excited to see what's to come thank you so much man bradley driver thank you for coming on the show man really really appreciate it and thank you to everyone that has tuned in till now um if you've been listening to we've been going for you know over an hour now and um i appreciate you guys tuning in what an amazing story i'll have all of his links down in the show notes below but bradley driver on social media definitely go check him out and if you haven't already please drop a follow to the pocket on whatever platform you're listening on it will be greatly appreciated helps the show grow helps us get better guests on and i'm keen to come on the journey with you guys thanks brad my pleasure ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 